0: I'm your host, DJ Gagnon, here with my co-host with
1: the non-alcoholic most, Mark Rossetti. Well, just spoil the fucking lead, why don't you? You know, I I was going to give you credit when we did our reviews. I was going to say you inspired me last week. To go in with the theme, and now you've just gone, you've blown it all in the intro. Mark, I was talking about our episode, which is literally
0: titled (laughs) Prohibition, so thanks for dragging me across the mud and spoiling our drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Bastard.
1: (laughs) The fuck were you up to this week? (laughs) This is glorious. Uh, Can you tell we don't rehearse, folks? Um... No, I, I well, uh, this is actually, what I've been up to is actually why I, you know, am, am a little bit sour this evening. You might say, I- I'm going to ask you a question, DJ. I'm going to answer your question with a question. Okay. I am not a man of science. Clearly. Y- y- you are more scientific. You like the, you know, the IT. You like the computer science, the technological advances, if you were. So I pose a question to you. Meteorology, the study of the weather. Yes. It's based upon modeling. Mm -hmm. You know, you take all your computer data, you take all your algorithms, you put them in a program, and it spits out a model of what it thinks is going to happen. Yes. And there's, you know, five or six different models they use. We do something very similar for racing. You know, you have uh, programs, you know, if you pit on this lap, this will happen in X, Y, and Z. My question is this. Why? Every time, without fail, is the European model so much higher than every other model?
0: You mean, like, they're better at doing weather?
1: No, 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 they're not even close. Uh, like, if, if somebody says we're going to get a foot of snow, the European model says you're going to get 31 inches. And I bring all this up because any second now, you will hear behind me the world absolutely end because the remnants of Hurricane Ida are bearing down on the 1821 studios. <laughs> it is blacker than a friggin' goth girl thong right now outside. I can't even begin to tell you how cloudy it is. And even our local weathermen are saying, they're predicting it like snow. They're saying we're going to get three to six inches. They're saying we're going to get, you know, four to five inches, depending on what weather you are. I went online. I looked up the European models. The European models claim we're going to get nine and a half inches. <laughs> I mean... Where are they getting their data from?
0: First of all, are you sure you're not reading the European models
1: as inches when it should be
0: centimeters?
1: No, I converted it, just to make sure, because the original number was much higher.
0: And also, they're in the UK trying to predict across
1: the pond. I mean, how accurate can you get? Exactly. Stay in your own damn lane. Brexit, Brexit, tea and crumpets, God save the Queen and all that. You don't see us going over there. They don't have any oil. We're not invading them. (laughs) No, too topical.
0: That is not what this episode is about, goddammit.
1: But I don't know. But uh, we are basically, you know, any minute now it's going to start raining. And it's pretty much not going to stop raining until uh, Thursday morning. So uh, about, you know, 40 hours as we record this. Uh, Once it starts, it's not going to stop. So there's a very decent chance this may be the last episode of the Witten Whiskey Cast, because I may be washed away. I'm kind of glad that the
0: 1821
1: studios got a renovation last year. Yes, I mean, officially we're out of the floodplain. Uh, we're going to see how that holds out. <laughs> uh, I mean, the river is not terribly far away, but, you know, it hasn't flooded here since 1936. So we'll see. Hey, maybe we're due. Yeah, not in your timeline. Exactly. So, uh, w- what the fuck have you been doing? <laughs> well, we,
0: uh, we were supposed to get a new fridge this weekend um, because uh, since we moved in, our fridge just randomly likes to just piss water on the floor whenever. It gets excited. Leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. I, I finish making ice and it goes, I don't know what to do. There's this is water. I'm going to pee on the floor. It's like a bad puppy. So, we have been talking about getting a fridge for a while. We went and ordered the new fridge. Lowe's was like, "Hey, that's not going to be in until October." I'm like, "Fine, whatever." And then last week they're like, "Hey, your fridge is in." <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So it's supposed to come in on Monday, and uh, we, you know, I, I clear out the fridge. I put everything in coolers. I move everything around in the the first floor to make it easier for me to get the fridge out. I pull out the fridge. I Unplug it and defrost the damn thing, I figure out the waterline crap. And they get here with the new fridge and the, the poor delivery guys pull the fridge off the truck as gently as they can. I'm watching them. Nothing's weird nothing weird's going on. And then I see them both just throw their arms up, looking super stressed, shaking their heads, as they're like unwrapping our fridge. And one of them comes up to the door and goes, Man, you gotta come out and look at this. I I don't know if you're gonna want this fridge. I'm like, what the fuck? So I go out and it's one of those where like the bottom part is a freezer that slides out. Okay. And like right in the middle of the freezer door is just, it looks like somebody just rammed a forklift right into it. (laughs) Like just because they probably
1: did when they were loading it on the truck.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I don't mean like a minor ding because like, I don't care about minor dings. It's a fridge who cares? like it, structural problems have happened to this fridge. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not good. And he's like, you, do you want it? And I was like, no, no, I do not want to trade one leaking fridge for another leaking fridge. And they took it back. It took me two days to get through to Lowe's. And finally Lowe's is like, oh yeah, that's, that sucks. Well, um, Whirlpool has no longer it, it no longer has any of these fridges, so you uh, you can have one at the end of <laughs> November now. Happy <laughs> I was, Thanksgiving. I was like, what about the October fridge? Can I still get that one? <laughs> and they're like, no. Wow. So there will be snow on the ground before I have a new fucking refrigerator. Now, so that's why I'm salty this week.
1: Yeah, we're, we're, you know, we've got enough fucking salt here to rebury Carthage between the two of us here on the old W&W. And if you don't get that joke, look at the fuck up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, fuck Lowe's and fuck Weatherman. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck you drinking this week? Well, you know, we, we kind of gave it away on the top, but you, you inspired me last week. You know, go with the theme, become a method actor, you know, live the gimmick, all that stuff. And uh, I had received as a gift for Christmas, and I still had some left, uh, a variety pack. of. Uh, they're from Cooper's Craft. Uh, it's a coffee, not, not the shitty whiskey that I reviewed a few seasons ago, um, but they're a coffee company. And they're actually up in New England. They're near you, DJ. They're up in uh, Rhode Island. Ooh. And they blend cask coffees. So, you know, they have a bourbon barrel coffee, they have a whiskey barrel coffee, uh, they have a rum barrel coffee, they have a few different uh, wine varieties. And basically they take a roast of beans and uh, then they put them again in small batches uh, when they're still hot, right in the barrels, and they age them and they steam them in these barrels. So I thought that might be a pretty good... uh, you know, way to start. Because, of course, the one that I did not actually open yet from the variety pack was the rye barrel. Because, you know, I am a rye whore. (laughs) So I decided, oh, well, tonight, you know, to tie in with the theme, we're going to go with that. And I have finally opened it, or not opened it, rather drank it, because it's been sitting here scalding hot as we've done our little intro. So finally, while you were discussing your fridge, I was able to... Uh, take a sip. <laughs> There's no alcohol in it. This is this is a alcohol-free episode all the way around. But damn it, if you didn't know that, <laughs> oh. it has a rye aftertaste. It smells like Irish coffee. It tastes like Irish coffee. Uh, it's an Ethiopian blend. I'm reading on the bag here, you know. So it has some acidic spices. It does have some fruity notes. They claim that there's peach jam and strawberries. I'm not necessarily getting that. I am getting just some generic, you know, fruit necessarily off the top of it. I think it's closer to a cherry than a strawberry, but what do I know? And uh, it is a good, solid black coffee. Now, I think they actually call this the battle cry, the Sons of Liberty whiskey, American rye whiskey, barrel-aged coffee. So, you know, the historian in me is just giddy on top of it. Um... I will say, now, I drink coffee black normally. I think you kind of would have to drink this black just because I don't know if milk or creamer or anything with the rye aftertaste would be good. I, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I'm sure as hell not going to try, but I think that would just be a bad combination and your stomach would churn. Um, the variety pack that I received as a gift I'm looking right now is $35, and you get three different types. You could pick whatever three you want. Um, in each one of the bags, you get a couple pots of coffee out of, so it's not like you're only getting three pots out of the the bag. And you could either get it whole bean if you're like me, if you prefer, or you could get it ground, or you could even get it in espresso. Nice. So overall, look them up. Uh, they have sangria coffee and Pinot Noir coffee, and you know all the different whiskeys. So if you like coffee and you like any type of booze, I highly recommend it. Cooper's Cask Coffee, easy for me to say, uh, up in Rhode Island. It's good shit pal
0: i love it i I'm adding it to my list i i've I'm running out of coffee right now, and I forgot to go to p c r today so so
1: yeah, definitely look that up nice. what about you? what are you drinking uh
0: so last week, I did the zero alcohol gin made by the company monday and and uh, you liked it i i did it was pretty good I think it would have been really good as like Maybe a mule or, uh, you know, a G&T. Something that, you know, had a sparkling backbone. But it, it, it lended the flavor right. So, I you know, I thought it might make some interesting... You, know, you could probably make, like, a botanical lemonade with it. So this week I decided to try their whiskey. And uh, I don't like it. Uh, it <laughs> tastes... It smells kind of chocolatey.
1: Okay. Like cloyingly chocolatey. Like bird dog chocolate chocolatey? Mm hmm.
0: And it tastes. It tastes nothing like whiskey. It does kind of finish, like once you've gotten past the initial taste, it finishes with a very brief, like caramel note. Which is, it, it, well, maybe not as brief as that. It does kind of linger. It's that, but it's a really subtle caramel note, and that's the only similarity I can get to to whiskey. It's like some of those whiskeys that finish with like a vanilla or a caramel, and you kind of get that like sweet palate afterward. But there's no burn, and it legitimately tastes like iced tea juice. Yeah. like it, it tastes like. Like, iced tea and... Like, if iced tea were a fruit and you squeezed it, you would get this. It doesn't really taste like a fruit juice, but it tastes as if it should be a fruit juice. I made a maple old-fashioned out of it, and I used a couple of dashes of orange bitters, and I used a bar spoon of... um, I actually had some bourbon barrel-aged maple syrup. Okay. And those two, like, I'm getting that, and it it tastes fine, but it's, I don't like this alcohol substitute. It doesn't, and and it's kind of crazy to me, because the gin was passable. Like, it it tasted like gin. It just didn't have the alcohol burn. It was a little bit sweeter. This just, I'm not getting whiskey. Um, So if you're looking for a whiskey substitute, I, I would probably shop elsewhere. If you're looking for a gin substitute, Monday's got a great offering. But I I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this this glass. And I didn't pour very much.
1: I'm not going to lie. You know, from what you've described, I definitely wouldn't want to drink it in place of a whiskey. But throw that here in my whiskey barrel coffee. That might not be bad because it'd be almost like a whiskey mocha.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it could work. The, the, my struggle with this is that I want to be able to find a good company that has good liquor substitutes so that I can practice that craft cocktail making without, you know, needing to drink alcohol every single time. And I want to be able to make it for people who don't drink.
1: And, you know, when you're practicing, if you fuck it up, you don't want to waste good liquor.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and this, it doesn't really get you there. I, I could use their Monday gin for for practicing gin cocktails, pretty good. This, you're not going to get the flavor profile you need out of it. So uh, I would not recommend buying the two-pack for Monday. Just get the gin if you're looking for it.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. We are, well, we're actually 66.6%. We've done three alcohol-free drinks the last two weeks, and two of the three we like. Yeah. And that's not bad. What do we got for uh, fucking whiskey news? All right. Now, this is something I had briefly texted you about uh, a week or so ago. And I was really excited about this till I dug a little bit more into it. Now I'm not nearly as excited anymore. Uh, Jack Daniels, which, uh, as I've often said on this show, I drank my share, your share, her share, their share of in my day, is doing something they have not done in over 110 years. They are releasing an age statement whiskey. So, uh, starting next week, as we record this, they are going to release a limited run of bottles of Jack Daniels, Tennessee whiskey, 10 year aged. Damn. That's what I said. Uh, the bottle is a very cool, you know, sort of 3d raised black and gold label. Uh, It is the old number seven recipe, but it is bottled at 97 proof, which is a decent chunk higher than regular number seven. Uh, And it is aged for 10 years in white oak barrels. So, you know, officially. Regular Jack doesn't carry an age statement. It's around four years. Some of them are closer to three. Some of them are closer to five. You average it out to four, but they don't go through the process to get certified and yada, yada, yada. Um, It's going to be a limited release, but they're going to do it annually. Every September for the fall, they're going to release about 200 barrels or so going forward. So if you don't get any of this time, don't sweat it too much. You only got to wait a year. That's all the good news. Do you... Wanna take a guess as to how much a fifth is or it's gonna be. Ah, fifty bucks? Seventy-four ninety-nine. Damn it. It's gonna be an MSRP of 75 fucking dollars for Jack Daniels. Uh I don't know. I officially the distillery uh they're the head brewmaster, ma- I'm sorry, master distiller, brewmaster's a beer term. The master distiller is a man named Christopher Fletcher. And in his statement, he claims he's cautiously optimistic that it will sell. And then if it sells well, that they will do other older age th- uh, statement whiskeys later on. So if you're a big fan of Jack like me, but you're not cheap like me, start looking next week. It's supposedly going to go nationwide, but it's only going to be 200 barrels. So, hey, good luck.
0: <laughs> yeah well maybe we should try and find one
1: I mean I have a feeling I know a store if the Pennsylvania liquor system gets them I have a feeling I, I know a store relatively near here that will get some I just don't know if I could justify $75 for a bottle of fucking Jack but that's just me <laughs> fucking Jack and I like Jack I'm not knocking Jack Daniels but it's Jack Daniels <laughs> um, I don't know what what are we doing for Tools of the Trade this week? Well,
0: I actually kind of... Uh, I happened into Tools of the Trade this week because I was getting frustrated reading old cocktail books. And okay. I, I realized that I didn't fucking know what any of the old school fucking measurements for cocktails were. So I put together a little cheat sheet uh, that we can use um, to, to help us understand some of these classic cocktails we're talking about. And I, I noticed that a lot of classic cocktail recipes, they don't really measure out fruit. It's generally like juice of a whole or half of, of a fruit. So like, you know, juice of half a lime or something like that. And there really isn't a good measurement there. I didn't come up with a translation, but uh, it, that's pretty easy to do. It. But then they start mentioning things like, Trams and ponies and wine glasses and hookers.
1: And I was like, my type of fucking party. <laughs> I
0: know, right. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, what the fuck are these? So I came up with a handy cheat sheet. I converted all of the most common ones into fluid ounces. Cause that's what we kind of think of when we think of modern day uh, cocktail recipes. You, know, you might see a shot here, a jigger there. Um, but a lot of the modern day books are, are ounces. So, Starting from the smallest, a dram is an eighth of a fluid ounce, which is generally the one size smaller than most uh, cocktail jiggers today. Uh, Which I was surprised at, because you hear, like, share a dram of X. I assumed dram was a couple of ounces, but no, it's really, really small. Uh, A pony is a single fluid ounce. A shot is an ounce and a half. Uh, a jigger is the same thing as a wine glass which is they're each two fluid ounces a hooker is two and a half fluid ounces a snit is three fluid ounces and a gill uh, is four fluid ounces They do keep going up from there there are recipes of like that use like a teacup of this and a full cup of that um, but I considering, Making an individual cocktail, you're never going to measure out more than four ounces of anything. Um, I figured I would just kind of
1: stop there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we pretty much make human drinks anymore. Yeah. Not party drinks. No, we're not making, you know, rum punches on the regular. But
0: that that was tools of the trade this week. I, I figured it would be pretty cool to actually understand some of these. It's a quick tools of the trade, but there are some really good websites out there that give you the conversions. Uh, So I I will definitely be finding uh, a a cocktail book soon, hopefully, that kind of stands between the two uh, measurement paradigms and kind of does that translation for you. Um, I feel like I've got a couple of cocktail books that have the translations, but I don't know that I've ever seen the measurement of a hooker before. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well it generally costs you extra if you ask to measure them. <laughs> yeah
0: but wine glass no. two ounces who knew
1: <laughs> yeah that's a small fucking wine glass I mean I have a feeling if I served some of the ladies at Conrad's a two ounce wine glass I would get hit <laughs> um, this is actually very fitting though I've been dabbling with ounce conversions myself this week just because I've been looking at good pipe tobaccos from Europe and they're all in grams <laughs> So, from those of you playing the home game, it's a little bit less than 30 grams is an ounce. It's like 28.7 or something. That makes sense. Is one ounce. So, this, this is actually very timely. Nice. All right. Well, let's get into this week's topic. Uh, it's Prohibition Part 2. Uh, I sort of, in my notes, internalize this as crime and gangsters and rum running. Oh, my. <laughs> but uh, this is not going to be nearly as uh, lengthy or as in-depth as last week was just because we covered, you know, the bulk of it. We only have one really small piece to talk about this week. We're going to mostly focus on speakeasies. Uh, We'll talk about some of the gangsters and some of the criminals a little bit as well, but we're only going to touch on rum running, because we're going to get into, you know, sort of bootlegging and smuggling and everything more next week. But also, when we tie in with speakeasies and everything, there's a lot of really neat cocktails and cocktail culture that DJ is going to talk to you about uh, Mm. a little bit later on. So we're only... We're not going to go as in depth this week. But so we'll start off with speakeasies because they are the main event here. Love them. Now, they originally were called smugglers' houses, which is a little on the nose. Then they were called uh, speak softly shops, and then eventually a speakeasy shop. And the first reference we find to this anywhere in the world is in 1837. The first listing as a speakeasy, all one word, the way we use it sort of in modern parlance, was from an 1844 British sailor's diary. So already by 1844, we're dabbling with these things. Uh, Also, uh, the name Blind Tiger you see thrown around a lot. Blind Pig comes up as well, but Blind Tiger is the more international term. And that was a speakeasy where you didn't know who the owner was. Obviously, some owners were front and center they liked the attention. A lot of them worked in the speakeasies, and a lot of them were just sort of the, the man or woman behind the event. So if you didn't know who the owner was, that was a blind tiger. Oh, wow. Yeah, I kind of thought that was cool. That is cool. Uh, originally, a speakeasy or a speak softly shop simply meant it was a place where alcohol was served. So basically, it was just a name for a bar before Prohibition. Cool. Later on, during Prohibition, of course, it got the uh, definition that we know of today where you would often need a password or a code or a formal invitation to enter. Uh, Later on, if you became regular with the bouncer or the doorman who was sort of, you know, working the little peephole, uh, they sort of waived that if you were a regular. But, you know, initially, strangers just couldn't wander up and get in because the cops were looking to shut these places down speakeasies are really cool because prohibition-era speakeasies, literally no two were alike. And, of course, you're all sitting there listening to this going, well, duh, no two bars are alike. No, what I mean by that is it's not like some of them were gin joints and some of them were whiskey bars and some of them were, you know, wine and sangria places. That's true. But the size, the layout the format of every single speakeasy was completely different because you had to work with what you had some of them were giant sprawling multi-room complexes that you know took up basements and sub-basements and were really closer to a bunker with you know a swinging dance floor than they were a bar others literally were one single room with a table two chairs and a guy holding a bottle <laughs> And anything you could think of in between. If you had a space and if you had access to illegal liquor, you could run a speakeasy. Uh, They were oftentimes owned by one person. Sometimes they were owned by sort of an investment group. You know, guerrilla capitalism was still running strong during the Depression. Uh, Of course, we generally when you think of a speakeasy, you think of organized crime and it being run by you know, some sort of gangster front or something. And that was often the case, but not always. I mean, that's sort of overblown. There were a lot of, quote-unquote, independent speakeasies. Um, one interesting thing about business ownership was a lot of women got into the game. There were a lot of female-run and female-owned speakeasies. And really, for a business world, they were a great equalizing factor. You didn't have a lot of that in America prior to prohibition now uh, you know some of them especially the smaller ones would be based solely on liquor it's a place to go have a drink or two spend a little money go home you can't get booze anywhere else but especially as prohibition went on the bigger badder ones they had entertainment and you would have music either you know a phonograph player or preferably a live band you would have a dance floor some of them could even have vaudeville-style acts, you know, precursors to comedy clubs that we have today. Uh, gambling was prevalent. You could play cards. You could play uh, roulette. Some of them, not so much in America, but in other parts of the world where Prohibition was experimented with, you could play baccarat. And, you know, there, there were also burlesque acts, strip, strip club acts, and prostitution as well so they really became sort of an all-in-one entertainment venue a lot of speakeasies had a very select clientele not just selecting that you know they were handing out invitations but you know some of them were men only some of them allowed women some of them were uh, immigrants you know german immigrants irish immigrants some of them were for quote unquote the nativists and when i say nativists i don't mean uh, actual Native Americans, I mean, WASPy white dudes at the turn of the century who are like, "We're natives." No, no, you're <laughs> not. Uh, you know, and, but there were quite a few speakeasies that also catered to all, and especially later on as prohibition became less and less popular in the mainstream, a lot of speakeasies, not just for gender but also for um, society and for cultural norms, became an equalizing factor. There, weren't, there wasn't a lot of discrimination in a lot of speakeasies. There wasn't some, I mean, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and say they were this great communistic utopia, but in a lot of them, uh, a lot of people were equal when they were sitting around the bar. Uh, I'm only gonna touch on this because I know you're gonna talk about it, DJ, but the alcohol quality ranged from basically borderline poison uh, all the way to smuggled aged bottles of pre-prohibition brand liquor. Yeah. depending on, you know, who the alcohol source was and who was paying for it. Of course, it generally leaned towards the cheap because, number one, it was easier to get homemade stuff. But, number two, if you paid less for the booze, your margins were higher. I mean, it's no different than running a bar today. Mm-hmm. One thing that I did never really thought of before I did the research for this episode a lot of speakeasies became legitimate bars after Prohibition. They just stayed open, but now they didn't have to hide. Oh, yeah, 100%. But the one that blew my mind was the 21 Club in New York City. <laughs> it did not close until last year, and that was only because of the corona. <laughs> Prohibition so we,
0: couldn't close couldn't no. this
1: club, but corona did. And so, you know, if we hadn't had a pandemic, it probably would have lasted over a century, which just absolutely blew my my mind. So who was financing these places? Who was supplying these places? Well, you get into, you know, just the warm, fuzzy, modern Americana of gangsters. And uh, the 18th Amendment really began to give rise to, quote unquote, organized crime the way most people think of it uh, in America. Some history sources, and I don't know if I buy this necessarily, but there are some historians who claim that the terms mobster and gangster did not actually come into mainstream America until Prohibition. Uh, before that, you would use you know, individual terms like goons and thugs and, you know, or a specific thing like a thief or something. Uh, but a lot of historians claim that gangster especially really came about during Prohibition. The really interesting thing about organized crime and the gangs of the Prohibition era is they took everything that big corporations were doing in the years prior during the Gilded Age and they just ran with it. They ran vertically integrated monopolies. So if you had a gang that was involved in a bootlegging operation, they would handle every single facet of it. You would produce the liquor. You would transport the liquor in special vehicles, which we'll talk about more next week. You would have warehouses and farms and barns and things to store it in. You would have people that would go around and sell it and collect payments for it. A lot of times you would even own the speakeasies themselves, or if you didn't own them, you would run a protection racket around them. (laughs) So really every single asset, or aspect rather, of the production was under your control. So there was no middleman. No one else was taking a cut from it. And it was bloody brilliant. And it also was fewer people to rat you out because there was nobody that was outside of the gang. Uh, The speakeasies and the bootlegging production would often spawn off the other crimes, which we talked about. Gambling was illegal in America. It was illegal in America until, what, about five years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all the card games would be under the table. They would be off the books. You would have protection rackets where... You know, even if you didn't buy your liquor from us necessarily, I'm going to come to your speakeasy DJ and say, you know, if you don't want it to burn down, <laughs> you're going to pay me and my men X amount of money every week. And then they would. Uh, prostitution, a lot of times the gangs would supply the ladies of the evening that would be in the speakeasies or the burlesque joints. Uh, plus you had just bribery and out-and-out blackmail. I mean, uh, there's sort of this image in fiction, especially literary fiction, of just the rampant, corrupt cop during Prohibition-era America. And that's not exactly fair. You know, we talked about, at the end of last week's episode a little bit, about how the end of Prohibition led into the Great Depression. These cops weren't making a lot of money. The economy was on the ragged edge, especially near the end of Prohibition. If you're gonna get an extra twenty-five, thirty dollars a week, a month, whatever, which was a lot of money back then, to look the other way and to feed your family, are you gonna do it? Especially when, with a few exceptions, this is just liquor running. This is just some card games. These are just prostitution. There's no quote-unquote heavy crimes. You know, there's no kidnapping. There's no beatings. There's no murder. There's no arsons. Just people are having a good time. Mm-hmm. You take a few dollars at the end of the month in an envelope, you look the other way. And if you don't, chances are you're going to get blackmailed because the gangsters know where your, your house is. They know where your family is. They might know a secret about you that you don't want to get out. <clears throat> now, later on, at the end of Prohibition and then especially into the Great Depression, mobsters and gangsters became insanely popular. They became folk heroes because they were standing up against an unjust law. They were standing up against something that everybody knew was crap and that nobody, you know, wanted. And they were giving the people what they wanted. People wanted booze. People wanted an escape from the drudgery of their workday. So if they were running a speakeasy, they were great. And, hey, you know, it's the American dream. These guys are making tons of money. They're supporting uh, not just their families but the families of everybody that works for them. These people are true American heroes. In the bigger cities, anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, More conservative rural parts of America didn't didn't see it that way. Although, later on during the Depression, uh, bank robbers especially became very popular nationwide. Some supervillain, quote-unquote, gangsters we had during uh, Prohibition. Al Capone, of course, is the biggest one. Everybody knows Scarface. Ran out of Chicago, And, you know, he famously just said that, you know, I'm just a simple man. I give the people what they want. Uh, He ordered some more violent acts. You know, he really walked the fine line between honest graft and just absolute brutality. Uh, But the people loved him. And, you know, they finally brought him down because they they got him on tax evasion of all things. Although he did okay. He smuggled $10,000 back then inside a hollowed-out tennis racket. He lived like a king in prison, so, you know. Uh, You had Salvador uh, Maranzano, who was out of New York City. He was another bootlegger, another run-rummer. He eventually, after a uh, big mafia war during Prohibition, he established what became known as New York City's Five Families, which is basically the basis of all organized crime in America all the way through the 60s when the FBI finally cracked down on it. Uh, basically any of Mario Puzo's books, not just the Godfather series, but, you know, Omerta and all the other uh, uh, mafia books that Mario Puzo has written, they're all based off of New York City's five families, and that came out of this era. Mm. Arnold Rothstein was another big gangster in New York City at the time. He was famous because he rigged the 1919 World Series, and he was pretty open about that. Everybody knew he did it, and he got away with it. Uh, Then on the more violent side, you had Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. Uh, They are some serious heavy hitters uh, in the world of organized crime, Uh, but they they also came about in this time. And all of this, you know, just the charisma and the well-tailored suits and in many cases the openness, I mean some, not everybody was as blatant about it as Rothstein was, but Everybody kind of knew what was going on. Everybody knew what was up with Capone. Everybody knew what was up with Luciano, etc. This led to the overall mystique and the later glorification of just criminals in general that came about during the Great Depression. Uh, so we're only going to touch on rum running a little bit because we're going to talk more about smuggling next week. But a lot of it, if it wasn't over land, because, of course, you have to get it into the country. And, you know, last I checked... America is surrounded by water and most of the way around. Yeah. We've got a little bit of Mexico and then Canada's pretty big at the top, but the rest of it's just water. So, most of it was by ship. You'd come into the major ports, New York City, Boston, Atlantic City, Philadelphia. Bootlegging and prohibition it did take place on the west coast, you know, the, the bigger cities, LA, San Francisco, etc. But almost without exception, it was an east coast thing. I mean, Chicago, Detroit, the Midwest, they had their stuff. But when you read most stories, it's the East Coast and especially the Northeast. I mean, Miami and Charleston, South Carolina, too, but it really was a, a Northeastern thing. And you would come in on smuggler ships. You know, you they would have hidden compartments. They would have hollowed-out holes. Anywhere you could stick barrels of hooch, you would stick them. Uh, the Canadian border... Still, to this day, is the longest, in terms of mileage, undefensible, not undefensible, that's not the right word, unfortified border in all the world. You know, us in Canada are friends. We don't usually, uh, you go into a few different border crossings, there's people, but especially all across the Midwest, you could just drive across the border. So there were trucks coming night and day, both ways through Canada. It's what got John Kennedy elected. His father was a big rim runner. Huh. true uh (laughs) also you had the great lakes now the coast guard was patrolling the great lakes night and day but they were underfunded they were undermanned and the great lakes are really fucking big (laughs) if you've never been there they're huge and so you can go right across from canada into detroit i mean detroit's just on the other side there into a few other border towns unload get back out And then once you were here, you hide in plain sight. If you had a farm, you had fake haystacks. Uh, There are famous pictures you can Google of these lumber wagons where all the wood is fake and it's all hollowed out and you just open a secret door and there's just barrels of whiskey in there. You had hollow floors in your houses. Uh, Women were actually making fake corsets and brasiers that had flasks and liquid pouches in them so they could you know, run smaller quantities of liquor from place to place, because nobody's going to look under a lady's dress. Uh, anywhere you can hide this stuff, you could. And then later on, as it went on, it became a little bit more acceptable to flaunt it. Uh, but we'll get into more of that next week when we talk about how you transported it once you got on land. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly in the South. All right, so that's part two. That's crime. Now... Take us through another form of crime: these god awful cocktails that they've been serving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did a lot of research uh, over the past week, and I, I've been taking some little notes here and there to kind of play off of what Mark is is talking about. And I, there's so much that can be said about prohibition. You can't talk about liquor and cocktail culture and bar culture without, you know, the second paragraph being how prohibition impacted it. it there's yep. no aspect of the kind of history that Mark and I enjoy sharing with all of you that isn't influenced in some way by the United States prohibition. And I, I'm, I'm of a few minds about it, um, because without the need to cover up bad liquor we wouldn't have really seen the explosion of cocktail culture that comes after Prohibition. And I'm going to talk about that next week. We're, we're going to talk about the, the rebirth of cocktail culture in the United States. Um, but th- as I was doing my initial research to just kind of come up with some, some cocktail books I could recommend for people from, from during Prohibition, uh, I hit a real wall. Until I started looking outside the United States, because uh, what I didn't realize until I kind of took a step back in my research is that uh, cocktail culture completely stagnated in the United States during these years. And of course, we knew we know that intrinsically, but the the reason why it stagnated, it's partly related to alcohol being banned, but it was it was also stagnated by the fun, the fact that a huge portion of our craft bartenders left the United States for these years. They just left. They went to Europe. They went to France. They went to England. They went to Ireland. They went to Canada. They found new jobs, and they kept doing what they were doing in countries that didn't have prohibition. So when you look for cocktail books at this time, you can find them, but you can't find them until very late in Prohibition, that were published in the United States. But before I get into talking about the cocktail uh, books that I found, I, I want to talk a little bit about what was happening with alcohol at the time. We, Mark talked a lot about, um, you know, we, we're going to do more in Rum Runners, but he talked a lot about the organized crime, and, and th- this is, you know, the rise of bathtub gin. And there's so many bad things about alcohol at this time. And the, the way I want to talk about this is from the perspective of why it's important for things like the liquor industry to be regulated in some way. Um, I'm not going to make any political statements here. I'm not going to say that the regulation has to be the government. But at this time, the regulation was, was wrong the regulation was against all alcohol it was too broad it was too sweeping and it, it it couldn't it couldn't control people and stop people from drinking it could just make the production of liquor unregulated by the people who knew how to do it safely so distilleries were 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 kind of pulling back all their secrets right that We had distilleries who, they just focused on their refrigerator business. We had, um, I mostly pulled uh, breweries here, but Pabst changed to making cheese. Uh, they actually made this cheese called Pabstet, uh, and it got so popular that craft sued them for encroaching on Velveeta. Uh, That's awesome. Coors changed to making malted milk or, you know, malk, as you might want to call it. Hey, all right. Uh, Anheuser-Busch actually survived by making 25 hugely popular products that had nothing to do with liquor. Some of them were soft drinks. Uh, I think at one point they made soap. They also made truck bodies. Like, they just stopped brewing. Well, kind of. They kind of stopped brewing. Because all of these breweries also made that that weak table beer that was like half a percent that was still legal. But not a lot was going on at the time in terms of like a like good brewing culture. And the same thing happened with distilleries. The distilleries closed up shops. Some of them closed permanently. Some of them moved to just being refrigerate refrigeration companies and would store things for other companies. So... In order to get the liquor that these criminals wanted and, and to, to stock the, uh, the speakeasies, we ended up <laughs> having all of these racketeers pulling all of these really nasty products and trying to make alcohol out of them, like wood grain alcohol that ended up poisoning a bunch of people. Um, you had uh, vineyards and I think Mark had mentioned this week, I, I, I wanted to bring this back up because I thought this was amazing. Uh, Vineyard started selling these, <laughs> what they called raisin bricks. Yep. <laughs> and raisin bricks were ostensibly for uh, using in the home to create your own grape juice uh, out of like a concentrate. But it, it was like very tongue in cheek. There was even one wine company who wrote on their label literally after dissolving the brick in a gallon of water, do not place the liquid in a jug away in the cupboard for twenty days, because then it would turn into wine.
1: Like it was that would be legal, and exactly. that would be naughty.
0: And there was a lot happening at this time. You know, there's definitely. Uh, I, I didn't do too much research into this, but there's at least rumors that the government poisoned huge batches of liquor and made people sick. I I don't know if that's a conspiracy theory or
1: not. Well, they definitely poisoned uh, uh, ethyl alcohol because, you know, everybody laughs. And time is a flat circle, you know, mm-hmm. especially with cars now. You know, uh, we're trying to be more environmentally conscious. We're trying to get away from fossil fuels. You see a lot of ethanol products being made. You see a lot of electric cars being made. All of that existed at the turn of the century. Yeah. And ethyl alcohol was another thing. And people realized that, hey, you could sort of... Reverse engineer this. I'm not a chemist. I don't know the whole process. But you could take ethyl alcohol, play with it through basically a home chemistry set, and you get corn whiskey. Yeah. So the government ordered the oil companies to put a chemical in the ethyl alcohol so that if you still did that, you got sick. That's actually a fact.
0: Yeah. And and that's the kind of stuff that was going on. Like the, the racketeers and the, the organized crime families, they would bring all of these like you know, it's basically your own chemistry set, right? Like, they they bring stills to these families that were doing the distilling, but you didn't have people regulating the safety uh, of how people were making this stuff. So, you know, you had stills explode in the middle of the woods, burning down places. You had uh, alcohol that was distilled so far that it was poisonous. You had alcohol that you know one family would taste it and go this doesn't taste very good and they just start adding shit into it to try and make it taste good and some of that some of the time that shit was poison so i i think what prohibition really showed us is that if you can't stop people from drinking you at least need to somehow make sure that the alcohol is safe to drink once it gets into the consumer's hands And I'm not going to make any political statements here. This doesn't need to be the government. But there are distilleries who have rules and regulations around safety. And that's why you know you can grab a bottle off the shelf at the liquor store and generally trust it's not going to poison you. And we lost that these 13 years. So there was a lot of really terrible things happening. But at the same time, if we didn't have prohibition, we wouldn't have thought to start adding things to liquor to make it taste good. Uh, and there were some cocktails that existed before Prohibition. We talked about that last week. The Mojito is a good example. The Mojito existed before Prohibition. But Prohibition created a, a, a desire for craft cocktails. You know, you weren't just going to have a, a shot of this or, a, you know, a a dram of that you were you weren't just going to be drinking that liquor maybe on ice maybe not you were you were started to add sweeteners and soda and fruit and juices and maybe some herbs and things like that you know you, whatever they could figure out to start adding to drinks to make it taste good those traditions kept going after prohibition and it gave rise to a, a burst in cocktail culture Uh, When we start talking about cocktail books during this time, we're starting to see more exact measurements. We're starting to see ounces and dashes instead of, you know, a wine glass of this and some of that and a handful of your cousin's togri. I don't know, something stupid. Um, (laughs) But we do see one of the big differences between modern cocktailing and and cocktailing at this time um, that I found pretty interesting. I had to look this up. Was that vermouths weren't denoted between dry and sweet? It was French or Italian. I had no idea about this. I I didn't realize that Italian vermouth is sweet and French is dry. I just only ever knew it as dry versus sweet. Is that something you already knew? That's probably something you already knew.
1: I mean, I knew, you know, Italian, you know, Martini and Rossi and all that. I wasn't really aware that, uh, you know, dry was French. Uh, Makes sense. But yeah, that red and white <laughs> <I don't laughs> go with that. Uh,
0: so I found three cocktail books to share today. Uh, the first one, and I haven't found a copy or a reprint of this one. I'm still going to keep looking for it, though. Uh, it's called the About Town Cocktail Book. Uh, it, it was written by Joe Fitchett and published in 1925. Uh, and it was, uh, you can look it up. You can get PDF copies of this because it's in, you know, the, the public domain now. Um, but a- every few pages or so, there'd be a fun little quote. Uh, it's very, like, of the time. So one of the cocktails I pulled is a, is a cocktail called And How. And it's half a tumbler of port wine and one dozen dashes of Jamaica ginger. Fill up with brandy, stir gently, in parentheses, very gently. It might go off and serve up with a little nutmeg on top, (laughs) which is just delightful. But I love that it's like fill up with brandy.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I have many questions. Do you start? With the port wine in a tumbler or do you take a bigger glass and pour half the tumbler into the bigger I, glass? I think it's
0: fill half the glass up with port wine, put in the half dozen dashes of Jamaica ginger, which is another question I have. And then yes. fill up the glass of <laughs> brandy, stirring gently
1: because it might explode. Well, I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I imagine, assuming it's not just a straight marketing gimmick, maybe the ginger would create some sort of carbonated effect you know, sort of like a Mentos and Coke gimmick. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and obviously if you stir it, you get more uh, energy through it and all that. I am with it the whole way until I get to the nutmeg on top. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that re- that's the line for me. I don't know. <laughs> uh,
0: I I did have a really fun time reading some of the little quotes. So one of them was, prohibition isn't so bad as long as it doesn't get worse, said our California friend. <laughs> It, like, I don't know what the context is, but it was really weird to read.
1: This really sucks, but it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: the second cocktail book I found um, is actually a fairly, fairly common one. I, I hear this one referenced a lot. Uh, it's the Savoy Cocktail Book. Uh, it, was, it was written by uh, Harry Craddock. I believe in 1930 was the third edition of this book. Uh, and it was written to kind of share cocktail recipes from the Savoy Hotel in London. There's so many. Uh, it, if you take a look at the the About Town cocktail book, it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek and fun to read, and, and there's little silly things uh, in there for you to read. This one is all business. The Savoy cocktail book is just page after page of just straight-up cocktail recipes. And I found what I thought was just the most bonkers one uh to share and this one's called the cafe bruleau uh it's eight lumps of sugar six jiggers of cognac two sticks oh. of cinnamon broken one twist lemon peel 12 whole cloves two oh. lar- two large twists of orange peel five demi cups of strong black coffee No, I don't, (laughs) know. Place all ingredients except coffee in a chafing dish. Heat gently, stirring constantly with a metal ladle. Blaze and let burn about one minute. Slowly pour in the black coffee. Ladle in demitasse cups and into demitasse cups and serve.
1: I mean, okay, if we just take away from just that ungodly Frankenstein's lab experiment that it is. Yeah, blaze and let burn. That thing's going to go up like the Hindenburg. You're going to have to fucking watch that like a hawk
0: I don't for know a whole what,
1: minute. I like, I will. I don't know what blaze and let burn means. I, I assume that means boil, right? No, I think it's like you ever see those videos because it's usually with coffee drinks when they have like a couple of espresso cups and like it's literally like flaming liquid. It looks like napalm and they dump it between the glasses. I think that's what blazing is. I I think you have to let this burn and just watch it for like a minute. I mean, I could be wrong. It could be an old school for boil, but I know there are alcoholic coffee-based drinks that you literally light on fire like a 151 shot.
0: Dude, have you ever seen a chafing dish?
1: Uh, I probably have, but I'm not familiar with the term.
0: Uh, It's like a Dutch oven. Okay. I think this is meant to be like a big party cock. I don't, I don't think blazing let, there's so much liquid in this fucking thing, Mark. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if you're putting it in the Dutch oven, then I don't think you're going to burn, you know, actually set it on fire for an hour or a minute rather. Um, but
0: 12 whole clothes. No. So so it's a jigger is two ounces and this is six. 12 ounces of cognac. 12 ounces of cognac. I want to make this so bad. No, no. (laughs) Like, I feel like this will actually be really good. It's basically like a mold, cognac, and coffee. But see, I don't like cognac. Well, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. Anywho. I mean, I like coffee. (laughs) Uh, The last cocktail book I pulled was a book called Hollywood Cocktails, Uh, It was published by Buzza Cordoza of California, which is apparently one of those companies that just made, like, greeting cards and then got into a bunch of other shit. Uh, It was published in 1933, shortly before the end of Prohibition. And uh, on the title page of the book, it said in small text with surrounding parentheses, whenever it becomes legal to serve. Yeah, it's it's like the anarchist cookbook. Don't do what's in this book. Uh-huh. So I pulled one cocktail out of it to share today. It's called Sardi's Delight Cocktail. A quarter of an ounce of passion fruit syrup, an eighth of an ounce of lime juice, a few dashes of absinthe, a few <laughs> dashes of grenadine, one dash of Angostura bitters, one good drink gin, shake well. <laughs>
1: Wait. Okay. So, timeout. <laughs> so we're giving multiple dashes, presumably the same way you would dash bitters, but you're doing that with absinthe. There's no quantity whatsoever. It's just a few to taste, as my grandmother would say. Yeah. But what is one good drink? Do you just fill a glass with gin I and don't then just add know. the rest of it? The- <laughs> now, I- this one I would be all about. This one I would make.
0: I uh, I think for next episode, we should try to make a Prohibition-era cocktail. Okay. I, I might try to make this Café Brulot. You're gonna die. I mean, I won't make the full giant... Because a chafing dish is like a serving platter for a party. So I'll cut <laughs> this down by, like... I don't know a quarter or something and make it. And no, you'd have to you'd
1: have to make a quarter. You'd have to cut it down by three quarters. Like there, you don't. Oh, need, yeah, yeah. I'll cut it. You down don't to need a six jiggers of cognac. No one needs six. Iggy doesn't need six jiggers of cognac. Eight <laughs>
0: ounces of cognac to five demi cups of strong black coffee.
1: God above!
0: I'm gonna try to make a play on this. I'll use the. Um, I'll use some of the Calvados I have in the basement, and I'll probably make some cold brew to make it
1: better to drink. I'm doing the intro next week, aren't I? You are. You're also- nah, Callaway might come back. You're also doing the outro now. Well, I am, but I'm, you know, I'm excited about this because I actually planned this this way for a reason. Because when I was doing the research, not just for this episode, but for last week, I came across a little poem. And I want to close out with it because it it ties in with all this. So I'm going to give you this quick one line of background. You know, Canada was a dominion of England for a long time. And it was still under the British crown during Prohibition. So in the winter of 1919-1920, Prince Edward of England, who was the, the successor to the throne, he did a tour of Canada to just sort of check on the dominion and report back to his father, who was King George V. And, of course, this was during Prohibition. So when the prince went to Canada, he heard this poem, and he went and he recited it to King George when he came back. Four and twenty Yankees, feeling very dry, went across the border to get a drink of rye. When the rye was opened, the Yanks began to sing, God bless America, but may God save the king. (laughs)
0: That's
1: (laughs) amazing. I really liked that. But yes, that is it for Prohibition Part 2, ladies and gentlemen. We hope you are enjoying this series a third of as much as we're enjoying presenting it, let's be brutally honest. Um, we, you know, we are we're on just every bloody podcast platform you could think of: Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, a billion other ones. Uh, like us, follow us, subscribe. It does help us get up in those ratings. Uh, if you can leave a review, you know, depending on the app, please do. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. We have a website as well. We have a Gmail as well, uh, Facebook, Instagram. We're the Wit & Whiskey cast. Uh, no H in Wit, but there is an E in Whiskey. And send us you know, your ideas for future episodes where once Prohibition is over, we're only going to have one more. We're going to have the season finale for season three. But, you know, can we spoil it? I I think we're going to come back for season four, huh? I think we're going to keep doing this. I
0: think so. I'm not
1: bored yet. No, I'm not bored yet. So, you know, we're going to do season four. If you have any ideas for season four, let us know. Uh, If you have any ideas for whiskeys to review, uh, let us know. If you disagree with the review, if you say, hey, you know, in season two, episode six, you reviewed this, I think you're wrong, let us know. I'll go back. I'll try something again. We'll, We'll look at it with new eyes. Yeah. Uh, So, big shout out to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and our outro. We're going to send you to a SoundCloud. We're going to give you the link to his book. It's on Amazon. You know, we love Nuno, so be sure to check him out. He's got a lot of good stuff going on. We love you, buddy. We do. Next week's going to be Prohibition Part 3. We're going to end on a little bit lighter note. We're going to do some more cocktail culture, and we are going to talk about the birth of an American tradition. We're going to talk about how running from the cops turned into stock car racing. I can't wait. I'm pretty excited. Me too. But hey, you know, until then, keep your speakeasy doors locked. And hey, salute.
0: Cheers.